The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Those famous final lines from the classic 90s movie The Usual Suspects describes the state of modern evangelicalism. In response to the excesses of the charismatic movement, which finds Satan hiding under every rock and behind every motivation, we've overreacted. And we've treated Satan as like a cartoonish red guy with a pointy tail and a goatee and a pitchfork. We don't take his activity in the world as seriously as we should or as seriously as the ancient church did. But Satan lies behind all the forces of darkness in the world and he veils himself behind false religion, evil regimes, and all corrupt systems of power in the world. And he uses these entities, these systems, as tools to persecute people, to devour Christians. And Revelation chapter 12 both unmasks the ancient serpent Satan as the source of the church's persecution, both in the first century and in the 21st century. And it also reveals Jesus Christ as the cause of Satan's downfall. It's an unmasking of the true enemy, but also a revelation of our true hope and the destruction of the adversary, the ancient serpent, the red dragon that is come after the church time after time throughout the ages. This is Understanding Revelation. Revelation 12 tells the story of Satan's persecution of Christ and his church with symbolic imagery. It's an allegory. And Satan, the dragon, waits to devour a pregnant woman's child, Christ, who one day will rule the world, he will rule the nations. So Revelation 12 is depicting this historic reality with visual language. So Revelation 12 is actually broken down into three parts. First, there's Satan's pursuit. Second, there's Satan's fall. And third, Satan's war. So let's look at each one of these. First, Satan's pursuit. This is Revelation 12 verses one through six. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon on her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. We're introduced to three characters in this order. First, there's a pregnant woman clothed with the sun, standing on the moon with a crown of 12 stars about to give birth. Second, there's a great red dragon with seven heads, 10 horns, and seven diadems. And finally, there's a child destined to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Let's look at each one of these symbols. The pregnant woman represents a composite of all the mothers like Eve, Sarah, Hannah, and of course, Mary, in the Bible, giving birth, bringing forth the line of the Messiah. And this composite really is summed up in the story of Israel 
itself. Israel is the archetypal mother who births Christ into the world. So I think the best reading is to say that this woman is Israel, faithful Israel throughout the centuries, also encompassing all the faithful women who have birthed people in the line of the Messiah. Now, she's described as a mother with a 12-star crown lit up by the sun, and she stands on the moon. This is probably a repurposing of pagan astrology, utilizing the constellation of Virgo to tell a distinctly Christian story. This is very political at its core. John is using this imagery to put the kingdom of God at odds with the empire of Caesar, to take pagan mythology and flip it on its head and tell the true story of the world. Now, what we see is that God delivers this pregnant woman from the wrath of the red dragon by taking her into the wilderness for 1260 days or three and a half years, which is a broken seven, half of a week, which as we've established in prior episodes, symbolizes a time of persecution cut short by God's mercy. It's a, it's a time of chaos and instability, but it's also temporary. It's bounded by the grace of God. The wilderness reference further identifies the woman with Israel. Moses led mother Israel into the wilderness as a refuge from the pursuit of the dragon Pharaoh. And in chapter 13, Satan's going to call up beastly powers, the beastly powers of Rome and apostate Israel to persecute the true Israel, the church in the first century. So again, we can actually extend this metaphor forward. The mother is mother Israel, but the church is the fulfillment of mother Israel. The church is the true Israel, the remnant given full bloom. And so I think this is, again, depicting not just all of history leading up to the birth of Christ, but also beyond it as God persecutes the church, birthed by the Spirit, birthed out of all the lines coming down from Eve, fulfilling that prophecy that God laid out after the fall when he said that he's going to provide enmity between Satan and the woman and the, the child of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head. So let's, let's look at that. Uh, serpent, the red dragon. The red dragon symbolizes Satan, the ancient serpent, who is constantly at war, like I said, after the fall with the people of God, with the children of Eve. His seven heads, ten horns, and seven diadems match the four beastly kingdoms in Daniel chapter 7. Uh, Daniel utilizes political figures uh, in, in symbolic imagery, and that's echoed here again. Satan utilizes these kingdoms, these political forces, people like King Herod, to snuff out the children of the woman. And we see this in very literal terms when Herod actually calls for the genocide of, of many children at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. It's this terrifying imagery, but it shows that Satan hates motherhood. Satan hates mothers, and Scripture's plotline depends upon mothers. It lives and dies by the opening and closing of wombs. That's how the Messiah comes. That's how deliverance is possible. So Satan stands behind every system that denigrates the work of Eve and seeks to devour mothers and their children. Now, Satan's tail sweeps down a third of heaven and casts them down to earth, which may refer to the fallen angels that he brings down with him. I'm not entirely sure, but stars in heaven can often refer to angelic figures. And of course, falling is a direction and an action that is associated with fallen spirits, evil spirits, and satanic figures. So maybe that's what's going on there. I don't know for sure. 
So we have the pregnant woman, Mother Israel, and the faithful church. We have the red dragon, the ancient serpent, Satan, attacking her. And finally, we have this child. Now, this child represents Christ, obviously, who subdues the nations. And just like Psalm 2 says, he's going to break them with a rod of iron. And Satan tries to snuff out his life. But God catches him up to his throne. He ascends. He goes up. This is a reference both to the resurrection, with his, which is an ascent out of the grave, and a lifting up, a casting up, if you will, out of the grave, and, and the ascension, which is a very literal, again, ascent upwards into the sky. It's a catching up. So both of these are represented as God catches up Christ through the resurrection and ascension to his throne. Now, this leads to another action. As Christ is raised up, Satan is cast down. So this is the second part, Satan's fall. Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 to 12. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. Christ's ascension brings about a heavenly war led by Michael and his angels, which cast Satan down to the earth. Now, Christ foresaw Satan's fall after his resurrection in John 12, verses 31 to 32. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Some people identify Michael with Christ himself. Other people say that he is the chief of the angels. I don't know that it's clear, but I think that the event that this war is centered around from the context of John 12 is the ascension. Christ's ascension defangs Satan's ability to deceive and to accuse God's people. Remember, Satan accuses Job in the heavenly courts. He can no longer do that because according to Christ, uh, Christ's work in Colossians 2.14, he has canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now, Christ stands as our advocate. He covers us in his blood, which forgives our sin. That has been fully accomplished. So so Satan can no longer condemn us. But the condemnation he brought to Job wasn't really about his sin. It was his temptation to make Job curse God. And what we see here is that Job is faithful unto death, in a sense. He's, He's faithful to mourn, but he never turns away from God. And in the same way, we see this victory of the martyrs. They conquer Satan. They, they are faithful by shedding their blood and being faithful to the testimony of Christ over uh, Satan's temptations, Satan's um, machinations to try to get them to deny the gospel. So Satan's fall signifies the authority of Christ and the power of God's kingdom breaking into the present age through 
the death and resurrection of Christ, through the bloodshed of Christ, but also through the blood of the martyrs that testifies to the truth of what Christ did and the authority that he has over the nations. Satan still works upon the earth, but his time is short and his defeat is sure to happen. And Satan can no longer bring any charge. He can no longer say, you are going to turn away from the Lord because God, through his martyrs, has solidified his testimony and he will solidify you and he will empower you to be faithful unto death. Satan's time is short. He can no longer act in a way that he did before the cross. He is no longer in those heavenly places of power. He has been defanged and dethroned over the earth. Now, that doesn't mean that Satan no longer operates on the earth. This leads us to our final part, Satan's war. Revelation 12, verses 13 to 17. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Satan's fall fuels his rage as he pursues the woman, but God gives her eagle wings to fly into the wilderness where once again uh, you see echoes of the language of Exodus. Uh, Pharaoh pursues Israel, but God opens up the sea to allow Israel to escape. And here in a stunning reversal, Satan pours out the Red Sea, so to speak, upon the church, but God swallows up the waters with land. Commentators suggest that the water language indicates false teaching, which is what we've seen in earlier chapters of Revelation, and especially in Revelation chapter 2 to 3 with the synagogues of Satan and the Jezebels and the Nicolaitans. So this watery floodwater of, of false teaching infects the church, but God preserves her. And this also indicates that the wilderness signifies the time of suffering and persecution from Pentecost to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. So this is what it's looking at, that after the ascension of Christ, Satan is now going to try to chase after the woman, but the woman will find refuge. God will preserve her like God preserved Israel in the wilderness. Now, when God preserved Israel in, in, in the wilderness, he didn't preserve her from all threats. She still had to fight. She still experienced different types of trials, but she was still nourished by the bread and the, the manna from the sky and from the water from the rock. So there's a similar imagery happening here that though the church is going to face difficulty, it's going to find refuge. It's going to be strengthened so that it can testify properly as it spends its time in the chaotic wilderness area before final judgment comes upon Israel in 70 AD. And we see this further with the reference to the 1260 days or time, times, and half a time. Now, we've seen this in Revelation chapter 11. 1260 is the amount of days that the two witnesses prophesy. I don't think these represent the exact same period of time, but the same kind of time. The 1260 wilderness days is symbolic, again, for the time period after Pentecost, leading up to 70 AD, the destruction of the temple. Whereas the 1260 days of the two witnesses seems more literal, pointing to the 42-month persecution of the Roman Emperor Nero. But regardless of whether they refer to the same period of time, I think the point is clear. 
that the dragon is behind these beastly powers. The dragon is the force behind all of the persecution against the church. And the two witnesses who face off against the beast of Nero are a microcosm of the larger war that the dragon has been waging throughout all of time, but particularly in this 40-year window between the death and resurrection of Christ and the destruction of the temple. Now, what we see here is that later the dragon, now cast out of heaven, is going to search for reinforcements from the land and sea, which appear in the next chapter. But for this chapter, the important thing to see here is that the church does not succumb to the floodwaters of satanic false teaching but experiences nourishment and deliverance, but deliverance through martyrdom. In other words, the picture we see here is that Satan can't defeat Christ, so he goes after his mother, the church. And as he goes after his mother, he realizes that God is with his mother as well, that the church is going to be faithful. They're not going to fall for the floodwaters of his lies, but they're going to be faithful unto death. They're going to shed their blood like their savior. And it is through that that they conquer Satan. It is through that that they uh, fight off his attempts to derail them from a faithful witness. Martyrdom is so central to the book of Revelation. Now, full disclosure, there are a lot of things in Revelation I'm not 100% sure about, and this would be one of them. I don't know what to make of verse 17 when the dragon, angry that he can't destroy the woman with his false teaching, turns around and makes war with the rest of her offspring. Who are these people? John describes them as those who keep the commandments of God. They sound like Christians. So there's these two groups of Christians. If if the woman is the faithful church, who's this other church here? I don't have a good resolution to it. Some people say that uh, the woman is actually the, the faithful Jewish Christians and the other offspring are faithful Gentile Christians. And so God allows uh, Jewish Christians to leave Jerusalem so that they find refuge in Gentile lands. Maybe it's a reference to that. And then Satan turns his attention to attack Gentile Christians. Um, There's a a whole host of different ways to interpret it. I am not 100% sure. So if you have a better solution, you can let me know. But uh, I do think that there is something here uh, regarding Jew and Gentile that I, I haven't quite parsed out. And maybe in further readings, it'll become clear to me. But again, keep the main thing the main thing. The, the centrality of understanding the importance of motherhood, the fulfillment of God promising that this, the, the seed of Eve is going to crush the serpent's head, and the fulfillment of that in Christ and in his church's testimony, faithfully witnessing to the gospel, even to the point of shedding their own blood. And how this ought to encourage us today that Satan is a defeated foe. He's still a very potent foe. He's still doing things in the world, but he cannot condemn us. He can no longer put us into bondage into our sin. You can no longer hail accusations about us because we've been covered by the blood of Christ. And this shows us that Christ's ascension and resurrection did something in history. It's not just a spiritual thing that we think about to give us warm fuzzies inside. It accomplished something in the world. It accomplished something in heaven. It accomplishes something on earth. And we can find refuge in that and to know that Satan's time is limited. He is bound. As Martin Luther said, The devil is God's devil. God is in control. God is sovereign even over our great enemy, and we can trust his purposes throughout history as he preserves us and strengthens us to testify to the gospel. 